Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Hey, good morning, LifePoint family. Thanks so much for joining us uh, this morning. You know, from time to time, I come across a compilation of fail videos on the internet, very similarly to the one that you just saw. And in case you're unfamiliar with fail videos, it's essentially the younger generation's version of the TV show, America's Funniest Home Videos. And like that TV show, these videos, um, you know, they, they capture people failing in some way, shape, or form. Now, if I'm being honest, I really appreciate a, a solid compilation of fail videos. I mean, if it makes me cringe or if it makes me wince in sympathy pain or laugh until I cry, that is the marking of a, go, a good fail video. I don't really know what that says about me as a pastor, but I'm telling you that is my criteria for a good fail video. Anyways, uh, watching these types of videos have made me wonder what would be on my highlight reel of fail videos, right? If, if the fails or the mistakes that I've made throughout my life were captured on video, what would be recorded? And perhaps you've had a similar thought, or maybe you're like, you know what? I never want to think about what would be on my highlight video, or perhaps a low light video would probably be a better term. What would be on my highlight video when it comes to a fail video? Well, for me personally, I can tell you there would be no shortage of content for my highlight video or for my highlight reel of fails. There's simply so much to choose from. I'm not even 100% sure I could tell you what would make the final cut. However, I am pretty sure that there would be some footage of me trying to back up with a uh, drive in reverse while towing a trailer. Allow me to share one such experience with you. You see, during my time as youth pastor, we would take the students down to Southern California for a week of summer camp. And in order to get everybody's luggage down to camp, we would drive a pickup truck and tow a trailer. And each and every summer, I had the privilege of driving the truck and trailer. Now, due to my disdain for backing up with a trailer, I had every intention of never backing up for the entire trip. In fact, I would map out our trip so that I would never put myself in a situation where I had to go in reverse while the trailer was attached, right? Some of you are like, that's insane. That was my life. I lived in fear of backing up. So, we arrive on campus at Biola University, and, and now it's time to find a place to park. Unfortunately for me, this particular year, I had never been to campus before, and so I'm not exactly sure where the best place to park a trailer would be. Well, we come across this parking garage. Some of you know where this is going. And, and I clearly see from outside of the garage that the first level is completely empty and, and wide open. It would allow for me to easily maneuver with the truck and trailer, no problem. I wouldn't even have to come close to thinking about backing up. And so I make a right turn toward the entrance of the parking garage. And just before I drive the truck inside, I see this bar hanging above me that lists the maximum height for vehicles in the garage. And then it dawns on me, I don't think the trailer's going to fit. 
And I realized that my, my plan for never going in reverse was crashing down. And so now as I sit there at the entrance of the garage, I'm, I'm blocking the garage. The trailer is long enough. It's actually sticking out into the one-lane road behind us. And so not only am I blocking the entrance to the parking garage, I'm blocking all the traffic behind me. I have 60-plus teenagers who are waiting to get their luggage out of this trailer to their dorms so that they can get to dinner on time and not have to go throughout the remainder of the evening hungry. And to top it all off, now I'm going to have to back up this trailer while turning at the same time. You better believe there was a few people who passed by me and smiled, shook their head and gave me the old, you done messed up now, man. And while it was painstakingly slow, and honestly, it probably would have been faster if I just rounded up a group of high school guys, we unhooked the trailer from the truck and just wheeled it back, walked it back ourselves and and rehitched it and pulled off. But we didn't do that. And so after pulling forward and backward a few dozen times, we finally inched our way back far enough until I was able to pull away from the garage entrance. And I'm telling you, If that experience were on film, it would definitely be on my fail video. You see, failure is a common aspect of life. If that weren't true, there would be way less fail videos on the internet, right? We all fail. Some might even say that failure is inevitable. It's something that we will all experience. Now, some of our failures are insignificant. There are times when we can poke fun at the mistakes that we make or, or find humor in our failures. Other times, though, failure is significant. And it can change the course of our life. It can be difficult to overcome. Failure can be painful. It causes hurt and turmoil and tears and heartache. All that to say, failure is a huge topic with so much complexity. Entire books have been written dedicated to the topic of failure. And it's a topic that we could spend a super long time talking about. But for the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at a few people in Scripture who experienced failure. And we're going to see how we can learn from their experiences, from their mistakes. You know, there's an old saying, it takes a wise person to learn from their mistakes, but an even wiser person to learn from the mistakes of others. And so throughout this series, we are setting out to be the wiser person, to learn from the mistakes of others so that we don't make those same mistakes ourselves. And my hope is that as we learn from our mistakes or the mistakes of others, we will fail forward. Meaning that our failures won't be a permanent setback, but ultimately that that we can learn from them so that they can help us and make progress toward becoming more and more like Jesus. And so with that in mind, I invite you to turn to your Bible or your Bible app to Exodus chapter 3. That's where we'll begin this morning, Exodus chapter 3. And this morning we'll be focusing on the failure of Moses and what we can learn from his experiences. Now, if you were to read the Old Testament books of Exodus and and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you will see that Moses is actually quite successful, and he accomplished many things. However, he wasn't perfect 
either. In fact, when it comes to the failures of Moses, we have plenty to choose from. We could talk about uh, an entire series really of breaking down Moses's failures. We could talk about how he murders an Egyptian in Exodus chapter 2, or we could fast forward to the book of Numbers chapter 20 and talk about the time when Moses disobeyed God's instructions regarding providing uh, water for the Israelites while they're in the desert. This morning, however, we're going to focus our attention on the failure of Moses that takes place in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Exodus. And so before we dive in, allow me just to quickly set the stage for us. You see, after killing the Egyptian in Exodus chapter 2, Moses flees to Midian, uh, to, to Midian because he, uh, Pharaoh was trying to kill him for what he had done for this Egyptian that he had killed in chapter 2. And while he's living there in Midian, Moses gets married and he works for his father-in-law as a shepherd. One day while Moses is tending his flocks near Mount Horeb, uh, Moses has an encounter with God that changes the course of his life. And this encounter also encompasses Moses' failure. Perhaps you're familiar with this particular portion of Scripture. At the beginning of Exodus chapter 3, we're told that God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. Now talk about an intention-grabbing move, right? I mean, obviously Moses sees that. He's going to be drawn to that. And so here's God in the form of a burning bush, and, and he has then a conversation with Moses. You see, the Israelites, God's people, had been living in slavery under Egyptian rule for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in their distress, they cry out to God so that he might have mercy on them and rescue them. And now God appears to Moses to tell him that Moses has a role to play in delivering the Israelites out of bondage. And so in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, God says to Moses, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Can you imagine receiving this particular call, this assignment from God? I mean, this is a monumental task. God, in the form of a burning bush, is speaking with Moses, asking that he return to Egypt to speak to Pharaoh, one of the most powerful rulers in all of the world, in order to lead hundreds of thousands of Israelites out of slavery. I mean, I can only imagine what must be going through the mind of Moses, how, what, what thoughts he has, what questions he has, how he must be feeling. And while not all of that is recorded for us, we do know that Moses responds with a question. In verse 11 of chapter 3, Moses asks, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. You see, essentially Moses is asking, why me? What authority do I have to go before Pharaoh? I mean, if you ask me, Moses kind of has a point here. He's not a political leader of any sort. He, he doesn't have any relationship or any connection with Pharaoh. He has no military backing of any kind that he could use to leverage in this particular situation. Moses is just an 80-year-old shepherd living in Midian. And we see God's simple yet powerful response to Moses' first question or concern in verse 12. God says, I will be with you. 
And while I'm sure that Moses counted that as good news, he's quick to pose another question. In verse 13, he asks God, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? You see, similar to having no authority or no credibility with Pharaoh, Moses asked this question of God because he also knows that he has no authority and no credibility with the Israelites. He hasn't had any contact with the Hebrews since he fled from Egypt some 40 years ago. In fact, the last time he tried to help them by, by killing an Egyptian slave driver, they didn't respond too favorably to his efforts. And now that decades have passed, they certainly have no reason to uphold Moses as a person of authority among them. And so Moses essentially here is is wanting to know, who can I name drop if he were to go before the leaders of the Israelites? And so God responds to Moses' second question in verse 14. He says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And while that may sound like an estranged response to us, the Israelites would understand this to mean that God had sent Moses to the people of Israel. Now for the remainder of chapter 3, God provides further instructions to Moses and and he tells him how everything is going to play out. This plan that God has that that Moses is going to be leading the charge on. He he tells him how everything is going to play out. However, Moses is not done yet asking all of his questions. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, Moses says, What if they, meaning the Israelite leaders, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? In other words, Moses wants to know, What if they say I'm lying? Right? What if they accuse me of lying and that they don't believe what I'm saying? Again, if you ask me, That's a valid concern. I mean, what reason would the Israelites have for taking Moses at his word? Also, how is Moses' story going to sound to the leaders of the Israelites? Hey guys, I I know it's been about four decades since we've last seen each other. How's everybody doing? Great, that's cool. Um, Well, hey, you're probably wondering why I stopped by. Uh, Well, you know, I, I was talking to this burning bush and... See, they would shut it down right there. I don't think Moses is going to make too much progress with the elders of Israel. And so, once again, God responds to Moses' concern here. And what happens next is is super incredible. See, God performs three miraculous signs, or he he speaks of three miraculous signs that Moses will be able to repeat if the Israelites don't take him at his word. Perhaps you're familiar with it. It's the first sign that God tells, uh, uh, provides for Moses that he tells Moses to take the staff that it's in his hand and throw it on the ground. And when Moses does so, that staff turns into a snake. And we know it's a real snake because the text says that Moses ran away. And you better believe I would do the same thing probably accompanied by some screaming as well, right? And now God then says, hey, I want you to go and grab that snake by the tail. And when Moses does so, it returns to its form as a staff. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never experienced anything like that. And so if I'm one of the leaders of Israel, that would probably grab my attention. 
Second, God tells Moses to take his hand and stick it inside of his cloak and then to pull it back out again. And when he pulled, and when Moses does that and he pulls his hand back out from his cloak, he notices that his hand is completely infected with some kind of skin disease. And then God tells Moses to do it again, repeat that action. And so he he puts his infected hand back into his cloak and, and when he pulls it out again, his skin is completely restored. You see, even the elders of Israel who who may have dismissed uh, or weren't impressed with the staff to snake miracle, maybe they would even start paying attention to what Moses has to say. For the third and final sign that Moses is to perform to convince the leaders of Israel that he is sent by God, uh, God says that Moses is going to turn water to blood. In verse 9 of chapter 4, God says, But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Now, having just witnessed all of that, you you would think that Moses would be ready to pack his bags for Egypt and hit the road. But that's That's not the case. It's almost as if he ignores what just happened before his very eyes. Moses responds with yet another reason or another excuse for why he might not be the guy for the job. Moses says in verse 10, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. In other words, Moses is saying, uh, look, God, I, I've never been good at this whole speaking and communication thing. I don't know that I should be the one who has a speaking role, especially if that involves going before Pharaoh and speaking to him. Now, again, I can appreciate Moses' hesitation here. He is being asked by God to utilize a skill that he doesn't have or one that's not fully developed. I mean, honestly, this would be like God asking me to to start a tow truck ministry. Like, "Mm, God, did you see how things played out at Biola? Like, I don't know that I'm the man for this job. And it's at this point then that God responds to Moses' question and concern for the fourth time. And he says to Moses in verse 11 and 12, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him, who gives him his sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. You see, time after time, Moses keeps lobbing up these questions and concerns and excuses, and God sees them and continues to knock them out of the park. And so finally, Moses agrees to get on board with God's plan, and he commits to going to Egypt to speak to Pharaoh in order to free the Israelites from slavery. Nope. That's not how the story goes, right? Even though God has patiently and graciously answered every question and responded to every concern, and even though God has performed miraculous signs before his very eyes, Moses is still not on board. Instead of submitting himself to God and doing what God has called him to do, Moses says, Lord, Please send someone else to do it. Please send someone else to do it. 
And maybe you've had that exact same conversation with God. And this is the aspect, this is the part of the story where, where we see Moses' failure. And, and how do we know that? It's, well, it's because the very next verse says, Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Now, parents, you might have some insight into what's going on here. And so let me ask you, as, as a parent or a grandparent, have you ever gotten frustrated or upset while trying to teach your kid a new school, a skill, excuse me? Perhaps it was riding a bike or swimming or maybe water skiing or snow skiing or, or driving, whatever that skill may be. And, and throughout this learning process, we tell our kids, you can do this. I'm here to help you. I'll be with you every step of the way, the whole time. And we try to answer their questions and, and provide them with reassurance. But no matter what we do, they're still hesitant. And for whatever reasons, they still doubt themselves. And they even get stuck or unwilling to take the next step. And when that happens, our patience eventually runs out and we get upset. And to a degree, that's what's going on here with Moses. See, don't miss this. In this situation, Moses fails because he continually focused on his own insecurities and shortcomings rather than trusting God's power and provision. He was constantly focused on his own insecurities rather than what God was doing in his life and who God was. And God reassured Moses that he would be with him every step of the way. And, and God provided him with a means to establish credibility through these miraculous signs. And, and God said that he would even help Moses to overcome his challenges with speech. You see, God specifically answered all of Moses' arguments by pointing to his own sufficiency. It was as if God was saying, Moses, will you take your eyes off yourself and look at who is giving you this assignment? Stop worrying about all of your excuses. I will supply everything that you need. But rather than focusing on God's power and provision and, and submitting himself to God's plan, he was still caught up with his own issues and resisted the role that God gave him to play. How often do we find ourselves in a similar situation, focusing on our insecurities rather than the sufficiency of Christ? How often do we do the same thing as Moses, offering excuses instead of our obedience. Of course, our, our reasons or excuses look different depending on what God calls us to do. Well, I, I'm too old, God. I'm too young for that. I don't know enough. I don't, I'm not good at that. I don't have enough experience. And the list can go on and on and on. I got to tell you, a few years ago, I almost missed a God-given opportunity due to my own insecurities. Looking back, it's clear to me that, that it, is what, what, uh, it is what God wanted, but in the moment, I wasn't so sure. In November 2016, we learned that a staff member here at the church would be moving on to a different church, to a new ministry, and, and thus it would open up a position on our staff. Unexpectedly, at least to me, Chris asked me to consider transitioning from my position as a student ministries pastor, a role that I had had for the last five and a half years, and step into the role of adult ministries pastor. 
And I got to tell you, I loved my job as the youth pastor. I loved the students. I loved the adult team, the volunteers that, that I got to work with week in, week out. The job was challenging. It was rewarding and it was fun. And honestly, I had no desire to leave that role so much so that I didn't even think of, of switching jobs. I didn't even think about the possibility of changing roles prior to my conversation with Chris. In fact, there was a time, speaking of the adult ministry's pastor position, where I told my wife, Erin, I never want to do that. Shouldn't have said that, right? <laughs> well, we took three weeks to make the decision because my focus wasn't where it should have been. At the time, I was only 28, and so I wondered, am I too young? Does Pastor Chris really want his right-hand man to be that young? And I was inexperienced. Like, yeah, I went to Bible school, but I studied to be a youth pastor. I didn't necessarily know how to effectively run other ministry areas. And I was focused on my own insecurities, not on the one who was calling me to that assignment. And finally, despite those excuses and insecurities, God graciously led us to accept a role. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you that God calls you to action, weaknesses and all. And the reason that shouldn't surprise us is because that's, that's God's MO. That's his standard operating procedure. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Allow me to read it for us. It says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were, uh, of, excuse me, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. In light of this truth, Pastor Crawford Loritz writes these words. I want to encourage you to stop looking at your limitations as hindrances to God working through your life. The fact that you don't feel qualified for what you are doing may be the very reason God has placed you where you are. You are reminded daily that if God doesn't come through for you, then you are dead in the water. You see, when it comes to our insecurities, we must remember God's words to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so in Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. And if you and I adopt that perspective as our own, then we too can celebrate our own insecurities. We can celebrate our weaknesses because we know that God's power will be made available to us. And we can echo Paul's words, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And so what is it that God's calling you to do? Or maybe a better question, how have you been failing to obey God because of your reasons, excuses, questions, and all of the what-ifs? Perhaps he's been calling you to be intentional about uh, meeting your neighbors. Or maybe he wants you to invite a friend to church online. 
He could be calling you to give an offering with purpose and regularity and, and with, uh, with sacrifice, sacrificially. He may be calling you to serve at church or to speak out against injustice. And if you don't know what God is calling you to, then I, then I challenge you to commit to spending time with God this week, asking him to reveal what it is that he wants you to do despite your weakness. And as you do that, keep these words in mind. See, weaknesses come in all shapes and sizes, broken relationships, strong temptations, de- depression, and tragic loss, feelings of inadequacy and mistreatment. And it really doesn't make a difference what it is. The question is this. What do you do with your weaknesses, your failures, and your wounds? Do you hand them over to God in exchange for His grace and strength? Or do you wallow in self-pity, allowing the enemy of your soul to immobilize you? Let's not be disobedient and fail to take action any longer. Set aside your insecurities and focus on God, the one who gives you your assignment. And as we do so, we'll grow in our faith and we'll have the privilege of being used by God to accomplish his will. And having learned from Moses' mistake, we'll be able to fail forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we're so grateful for the patience and the grace that you offer to us. God, the fact that Moses was able to come to you four times over and you responded, God, pointing him back to to who you are and the sufficiency of Christ. God, may we learn from his error. May we learn from his mistakes, God, so we can avoid it in our own life. God, being ready to submit our lives to you. God, being, being ready to live in obedience to you and, and, and accept the call, whatever that may be, that you've placed on our lives. God, knowing that we'll be ill-equipped for it, but that you'll be with us every step of the way because when we are weak, then we are strong in you. God, help us to learn this lesson so that we can fail forward, becoming more and more like your son, Jesus. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.